We uh, continue our series on spiritual warfare, the evidence of our victory in Jesus Christ with a wonderful text that many of you know from John's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. Remember, John is writing this Gospel in the 90s A.D. It's well after uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke have written. And he begins with the identity of Jesus in chapter 1. And here he includes a statement that Jesus makes from the cross that's found in no other gospel. But uh, it's a wonderful statement, beginning in verse 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. A thousand years ago, a man made a statement that I've never forgotten. It's very useful. Something that you ought to probably commit to memory if you're a Christian. Because it really does answer the question, how anyone believes. His name was Anselm, and he was the Bishop of Canterbury. He was the first one to found the ontological argument for God. Ontology is being, and so he does what Paul does in Romans chapter 1. He says, all of creation testifies to the existence and the glory of God. That's the ontological argument, an argument that God exists because of what is created. So Anselm not only did that, he was a philosopher, obviously. He wrote widely. He was a churchman. But of all the things that he contributed to the Christian faith, perhaps this statement is the best. I understand not to believe. I believe in order to understand. For this I believe, unless I believe, I will not understand. You don't understand in order to believe, you believe in order to understand. It's a function of revelation. God opens our eyes, unstops our ears, and as you believe, you begin to understand more and more. Have you understood that as you witness to others, as you perhaps get into arguments about the existence of God. You can't argue someone into the kingdom. Only God needs to open their eyes and unstop their, their mind and their heart and soften it. So I believe in order to understand. I don't understand in order to believe. Years ago in southern Mississippi, there was a church that had its protocol well established. Every Sunday night, the pastor, after a message, would come to the front of the sanctuary, and he'd invite people to come and give testimony to what God had done in their life. And so one particular night, an old woman stood up slowly, walked slowly to the front, and she turned around and with a loud voice said, I want to thank the Lord for the power of His Word. You see, when I get low and the troubles begin to find me all at once, all I have to do is open God's Word and start reading. And sooner or later, I'll come to those words that came to pass. And when I read those words, my heart goes to shouting, Bless God! 
It doesn't come to stay, these troubles. They come to pass. And that's exactly what happens to Jesus on the cross. Trouble had found him. He looks for all the world like a victim. And then he speaks one particular word, and we know he's not a victim. He's the victor. Now, if we had only had Mark's gospel and his description of the cross, we might be tempted to think that Jesus is a victim. Matthew says that as soon as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also cries out in a loud voice and gives up his spirit. If Mark were the only gospel we'd have, we would think that maybe Jesus died in anguish. Because Mark simply says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. If we had Luke's gospel, we might think that Jesus, at the end, only says, into my Father's hand I commit my spirit. But bless God, we have not just three Gospels, we also have one more, the fourth. John's Gospel. Jesus lifts up his eyes and he says, it is finished. You know, the Greeks used to say that brevity in communication was essential. They used to say, you must seek to give a sea of matter in a drop of language. Jesus does better than that. A hundred years before Jesus went to the cross, Julius Caesar won a decisive battle over a mortal enemy by the name of Pontus. He returned to Rome and he made an announcement that has gone down into the annals of history as one of the greatest, briefest summations of victory ever given. Maybe you know it. Vini, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. Three particular words. Came, saw, conquered. Six if you include the I. And yet Jesus, when he gives his cry of victory, it's only one word. Tetelestai. Translation, it is finished. That's his victory cry. Tetelestai. It is finished. You know, there's so many things about that word that we could talk about today. But let's look at just a couple. Five. First, notice the plan. Look at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now think about this. Jesus speaks seven statements from the cross. And yet before every statement, he has been whipped, he's been scourged, he has been spat upon, he's been cursed, he's been nailed through his hands and feet. And yet when Jesus hangs on the cross, the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he says it, it looks as though the devil is one. And then when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, and woman behold your son, 
the crowd must have thought he's a raving lunatic. And when he shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He must have seemed as though, it must have seemed to the crowd as though he was in anguish. And anguish had gotten the better of him. Do you know the definition of the word anguish? It comes from a Latin word to be compressed. You think of all of the compression that happens in those six hours to Jesus on the cross. He experiences all of our sin, all of our filth, all of our greed, all of our selfishness, all of our lust, all of our anger, all of our darkness. It's all compressed into Him. And during the last three hours, the perfect Son of God becomes utterly depraved. The Bible says He becomes sin. I mean, talk about compression. It's during these three hours that He endures the full fury of His Father's wrath, and we looked at that last time. And when it's over, according to John, He doesn't yet give up His Spirit. No more anguish. He simply pronounces one word, tetelestai. It is finished. And the anguish is over. The pain is gone. Second, notice the prophecies. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all, that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. So think of this. In Psalm 41, the Bible predicts His betrayal. In Psalm 31, the Bible predicts that He'll be forsaken by His closest associates. In Psalm 35, the Bible accuses or says that there will be accusations leveled against him. All of them will be false. In Isaiah 53, the Bible tells us he will be before his accusers silent. Five verses later in that same passage in Isaiah 53, it says he'll be numbered among the transgressors. In Psalm 22... It says they'll taunt him, they will gamble for his garments, and God will forsake him in Psalm 109. It says he'll be mocked by spectators in Psalm 69. It says he will say, I thirst. By the time he says, Tetelestai, it is finished, 13 of 17 prophecies about the cross have been fulfilled, and the other four will be fulfilled in a matter of moments. In other words... Everything that God said would happen, happens. It's occurred already. The prophecies have been fulfilled. It is finished. Then third, notice the plan. Look at verse 30a again. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, think of that. The last thing he receives from sinful man on the cross is sour wine. And immediately my mind goes to John chapter 2 and his first miracle. Remember that? The wedding of Canaan. What happened at Cana? They had run out of wine. How is that significant? Because it's an offense to your guests, but more than that. Wine to the Jew symbolized joy. 
The Jews used to say, without wine there is no joy, well, without joy there is no life. So here at the beginning of his ministry, he goes to a celebration of a Jewish wedding, and they've run out of joy, they've run out of life. And Jesus turns water to wine. Why does he do it? Because they're out of life. They're out of joy. They're out of everything that makes up a quality life. And so what do they do at the cross? They dip into a sour wine vat, a sponge. Even in this last few moments of his life, they can't offer him anything but sour wine. Their life is completely without any quality. Their life is a life of absolute darkness. It's a perfect metaphor for everything that you and I and our flesh can offer God. When Queen Elizabeth died, 1603, she was the idol of her time. People, even men, marveled at her beauty. They said her skin was like porcelain. She was sophisticated. She was glamorous. She was graceful in all she did. Everyone on earth, it seemed, wanted to be just like Queen Elizabeth. And yet on her deathbed, she turns to her maid in waiting and says, Oh my God, it's over. I've come to the end. I've lived, I've loved, I've triumphed, and now it's no more. And it's said at that moment, the couriers who would be there at her beck and call looked at her face, a face that was the envy of the world, and now her face was an ugly gray mask of death. How different from Jesus. On the cross, he doesn't say, oh God, it's over. When he comes to the end, he doesn't say, I've lived and loved and triumphed and now it's no more. Instead, he says, it is finished. Think of it. At age 12, his parents lose him. They go on a fevered search and they find him in the temple and he's there discussing, listening and discussing with the teachers. And when they say to him, where have you been? He said, didn't you know that I'd be about my father's business? And here the youngest disciple says 21 years later, hanging on a cross, he says, I've finished that business. Think of it. Throughout all of eternity, the plan of God was fixed. God the Father knew that there were coming two horrible realities. The birth of His Son. That the Son of God would be born as a man. That He would empty Himself leave heaven and divest himself of all of his glory. 
he'd be born. That was the first terrible reality to the father. The second horrible reality is that the father would curse him. And when Jesus says, it is finished, he means both horrible realities are completed. Then notice the picture. Look at verse 30b. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that God sent his son into the world to redeem those who are under the law. And redemption means to buy something back. So what's bought back? God's people are bought back. What's owed? What's the debt? The debt is sin against Almighty God. To whom is that debt owed? That debt is owed to God the Father. So think of it. On the cross, the Son of God pays His Father the debt that you and I owe, and in so doing, He buys us back. And He gives us a whole Bible of glimpses of that full picture. Genesis chapter 3, God takes the skins of animals and He clothes Adam and Eve after their sin. Our first parents that are sinners, God clothes them and we get a glimpse. In the next chapter, our brother Abel sacrifices the firstborn of his flock and we get a glimpse of the picture. In Genesis 7, when the wrath of God is poured out on the wickedness of the world, God provides an ark and He saves eight people and we get a glimpse of the picture, the full picture of Jesus on the cross. Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice His only son Isaac and we get a glimpse of the full picture of the cross. In Exodus chapter 12, when the angel of death sees the blood on the doorposts and he passes over God's people, we get a glimpse of the full picture of the cross. In Numbers 21, when the sin of the people is so great that God says, I'm going to wipe them out. And then he tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on the end of a stick and lift it up that whoever looks upon that serpent will be saved. We get a glimpse of the full picture of God's plan on the cross. In Hosea, when God calls the prophet Hosea to go rescue time and time again his philandering wife from one lover after another, we get a glimpse of what Jesus does on the cross. And ladies and gentlemen, I could go on and on. That's a, simply a small portion of the glimpses we get in, in the Bible. The Bible is full of glimpses of the glory of God. When Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. That's the complete total picture of God's plan and God's purpose. And that brings us to our last point. Notice the power. Verse 30c, and he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. Nobody took his spirit from him. He gave it up. Who did he give it to? He gave it to His Father. Of all the things the cross teaches us, there is no lesson that's greater than this. That God's power 
and absolute sovereignty over Satan is confirmed by the cross. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 14, and I'll read it from the New English Version because other versions are tough to understand, especially when you're not seeing the words, you're only hearing it. So here's the New English Version. Since we have a common physical nature as human beings, Jesus became a human being. So that by going through death as a man, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might also set free all those who lived their whole lives as prey to the fear of death. Now think about that. From a human perspective, the cross looks like the moment of Satan's greatest triumph. It looks like he's killed the Son of God. But in reality, when Jesus says it is finished, he proves that Satan is a defeated foe and Jesus wins. Think of it. Less than a week earlier, Jesus had said to a crowd in Jerusalem, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Already he's been cast out of the heavenly position he's occupied. Already he's been sentenced in Genesis chapter 3 where God says to the serpent, your seed will bruise his heel, his seed will crush your head. But here on the cross... The one who used God's judgment as a weapon of darkness. The one who used death as a final instrument of destruction is stripped of it for every believer. Sure, Satan has yet to be chained. He has yet to be cast into the bottomless pit. He still roams around seeking those he might destroy. But ladies and gentlemen, as the great Puritan John Owen has said, for every Christian, the death of Christ is the death of death. Martin Luther understood that. That's why he wrote these words. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. What word is that? Luther continues in the next verse. He is Jesus Christ. Do you want a testimony of Jesus' power? A testimony of the doom and destruction of Satan? You want to pick one word? Let it be tetelestai. It is finished. I love what Arthur W. Pink says. Here is the triumphant answer to the rage of men and the hatred of Satan. It is finished. That one word tells of a perfect work that meets sin in the place of judgment. Think of it. Everything a holy God demands, Jesus Christ, His Son, completes on the cross. Everything necessary for God's glory to be affirmed, Jesus finishes on the cross. Whatever sin there is, is paid on the cross for those Jesus has come to save. What good deed is there to be done that Christ hasn't already done on the cross? 
What possible thing would God require that Jesus hasn't done already on the cross? What power is there that can ease pain and stop worry and quench the fire of any doubt and any fear any better than the cross? Ladies and gentlemen, it's all about the cross. It's all about the Lord of the cross. When you sin, you go to the cross. When you're joyful, you go to the cross. When you're facing death, you go to the cross. When you're living your life, you go to the cross. You lean into the cross because that's where the Lord of the cross is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, there it is finished. Aren't you glad it's finished? Aren't you glad you don't have to add anything? If we had to add something, we'd screw it up. Jesus paid it all. You know, maybe that's why... I don't know, but maybe that's why. When they laid out the city of London in a grid, they put at the center a place they called Charing Cross. You know, every direction in town is measured from the cross. I love the story about a little boy who got lost in the city of London. He wandered for hours. He was in tears. He came to a bobby, a policeman, and he said, I'm lost. And the policeman said, well, what's your address? He said, I don't know. And the policeman said, well, how can I help you? He said, just get me to the cross. I can find my way home from the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the essence of the Christian life. There are those who might say, We've talked about the cross enough. There are those who might say, I think I know all there is to know about the cross. And when you hear that, all you need to do, especially if you say it to yourself, just shake your head in the mirror and say, you dummy. <laughs> the cross is a reservoir that none of us can ever exhaust. The cross is where Everything comes together in all of human history and actually all of eternity. Before time, the cross was fixed. Before you were born, the cross was fixed. But when you hated him, he loved you, and the cross proves it. And when you're worried, and when you're depressed, and when you're guilty of sin, there is one place to find freedom. And it is the cross. And that's why Jesus, when he talked to his disciples in the upper room that last meal they ate together, he said, do this. As often as you come together to eat and drink, remember me. All that I've done. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. And so we do today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for John, your beloved disciple, the youngest. The one who, with his brother, was so proud to say, let me sit on the right or the left. The one who was just as misguided as all the others but the one who seemed to circle back to the cross before you, Lord, before you gave up your spirit. We thank you that you had him there so that he could report that one word that you spoke before you gave up your spirit. Ketelestai.
it is finished. Now, Lord, as we come to your table today, we pray that you would eat, we would eat and drink of your finished work. That these elements would be set apart from a common to a sacred purpose. That as we eat and drink, we might experience again today the finished work of Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.